Welcome to Dr. Eric's Relentless Vitality Podcast. Our focus is on optimizing physical and mental vitality, maximizing performance, and extending lifespan. Dr. Eric is a licensed physician with a wealth of expertise in age management and preventive medicine, whose goal is enabling his patients to stay young, feel their best, and enjoy a higher quality of life. So I'm uh... Uh, go ahead and start recording. So I'll, I'll do a little intro too, but uh, for all my listeners, guys, welcome to the Relentless, Vi- Relentless Vitality Podcast. I've got an awesome guest today and I'm going to have him introduce himself. Tell me a real quick brief while and we'll dig into the, the fun stuff about testosterone and fertility and much, much more. So how you doing? Eric, uh, so nice to uh, be on this podcast with you. Thank you for having me here. Uh, I'm Ranjit Ramasamy. I'm a urologist here at the University of Miami. Uh, I specialize in reproductive urology and men's health. Uh, primarily focusing on men with uh, low testosterone, infertility, uh, sexual dysfunction, and Peyronie's disease. So um, obviously a lot of men, unfortunately, are affected by all of these conditions put together. These conditions and prevalence seem to be only increasing by the day. We see more and more men uh, suffering from these issues. Um, I don't know if it's just increasing in prevalence or more men uh, addressing these issues early on and want to take on a more active role in their lives. So um, we're only increasing, and I think it's important to have good information out there for people uh, so they don't get uh, uh, tricked or fall prey uh, to some of the misinformation that's available on Dr. Google. <laughs> I think that's awesome. That, that's, uh, that was kind of my first talking point. Let's talk about, like, you know, because people ask me this all the time, you know, why is, it such, why is it more and more of a problem nowadays? And I think a lot of it has to do with, unfortunately, environment, the toxic world we live in, our soils depleted of nutrients, the the blue lights, the computers, the EMF, the, the toxins in our food and water, plastics, I mean, everything, I guess there's a combination, but obviously I'm seeing, and you've seen it obviously too, probably more than I have that, you know, a lot of, you know, gentlemen in their older, you know, older years are doing okay, but I'm getting guys coming in with symptoms of, uh, you know, hypogonadism and low testosterone symptoms at, at a younger and younger age. And it's like, man, why is that happening? What, what are your thoughts on that? What are you seeing? Right. So one of the um, first, um, observations when we actually tried to go back and study this is we just recently published a paper in European urology focus where we looked at the testosterone levels um, in young men so between the ages of 18 to 39 you know young uh, adolescent and young men um, in 1999 the average was around 625 and then now in since 2011 to 2000 uh, 16, where the most iteration data was present from NHANES. So this is a nationally representative sample across the United States from a large cross-sectional set of data. And the testosterone level now, the average is around 450. And so, uh, uh, you know, even so the, uh, people often think this low testosterone erectile dysfunction is a condition of older men. It's a condition of aging. It's like cataracts and hypertension and diabetes that these things just happen as men get older. But we're seeing this a lot more in young men, adolescents, and young adults. And there's several factors for why this can happen. One of the things that we explored in the study is to look at average BMI among these adolescents and young adults. And the average BMI, I think it's no surprise to any of us, has definitely increased from the late 90s to the early 2000s, and now in, in this decade of 2010 to 2020. Again, several reasons why. Uh, explosion of fast food, easy access to, uh, to quick food that is probably not healthy, sedentary lifestyle, more exposure to internet, video games, YouTube, uh, social media, smartphones, all of this did not exist in the late 90s and 2000s. And I think kids and, and adolescents and young adults have just become less active, 
lead more sedentary lifestyles and, and don't have as much physical activity and exercise built into their daily routines. Not as much sports, more of indoor sports and, and indoor video games um, and just poor eating habits, poor lifestyle, poor sleep. I mean, you can go on and on, uh, but I think these are all some of the big factors for why we're seeing such a remarkable shift in uh, testosterone levels and in uh, people presenting with uh, conditions of low testosterone at a much earlier age. Yeah, that's very well stated. And I agree with all that. I mean, I see that just as, you know, like you as well. And I think that's one of the things I try to impress upon my younger patients, even my kids, you know, talking to them about those, those types of issues, you know, it's, it's, it's a big problem. I mean, look at the fact that they adjusted the, the normal, the quote unquote normal levels downward. How many years ago was that? You know, that's, that's not good. Right. Kind of like right. making seats bigger. So on the planet. <laughs> Um, and I'm glad to hear you talk about, you know, you made, you made a comment about Dr. Google earlier. And I think that's one of the things I talk about in a lot of my videos is that obviously there's a lot of people like researching things or just, you know, quote unquote, Instagram stars giving advice about medical things and hormones. I'm like, there's a huge difference between that and seeing an actual clinician in the office right. doing a history and physical, someone who has experience, you, know, you can read, read, read articles and things, but, uh, you know, it doesn't make, you know, you, there's more to it than that. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of, uh, ex quote unquote experts out there that I'm like, I, you have to be careful who you listen to. So I'm glad to hear you comment on that as well. Right. No, I think, I think, I mean, some of the other things, I mean, when you look at fertility and, and why are sperm counts declining, are sperm counts declining worldwide? Um, I think you mentioned some of the exposures, right? Some of the toxins, mm -hmm. some of the pollutants, some of the endocrine disruptors that we're getting you, that we're getting exposed to plastics, BPA, things that were not around uh, as much in the olden days. And now I think we're creating more awareness about it. Uh, but I mean, whatever happened in the late 90s and 2000s is what we're seeing now as an effect because those men and us who were exposed to those things in the late 90s and early 2000s are becoming parents now and we're seeing a lower sperm count and, and higher rates of infertility. For sure. And the other, the other shift that has happened both in men and women is, is we want to establish stable careers. And so we've gone on to, uh, you know, think about having kids, checking our sperm counts and testosterone levels at a much later age than we did before. Mm -hmm. um, advanced, uh, sorry, paternal age in the United States has definitely increased every decade to decade to decade. Men are having, uh, trying to father children a lot later. Older men are going on to try and father kids now with younger, younger females or even females that are older. And so this puts a huge pressure on society because now we're seeing a much higher rate of infertility. Mm -hmm. uh, what would not have been a problem 10 years ago because these men tried to have kids at a younger age is now suddenly a problem because now they're coming back in their late 40s and 50s trying to father children. Right. And they're unable to, and then, we go, and, and then, and then that, that obviously feeds into uh, you know, creating problems with testosterone deficiency and so on. Yeah, so let's talk about fertility a little bit because I get asked that a, a lot. I've had a few patients who have either been on testosterone or want to get on it, but still either didn't have kids and wanted to, or maybe they had one and now they're on therapy and they want to kind of quote unquote, become fertile again. And there's obviously a lot of strategies to deal with that, but um, let's talk about that a little bit. Cause I get asked that a lot. I mean, obviously, you know, the first question people always ask is, man, if I'm, cause I always counsel patients, if you're going to go on testosterone, there is a risk of infertility, but what, when you're in your experience, what's the percentage of gentlemen that, you know, are able to, you know, down the road, have kids again, you know, short-term, long-term, if they're on testosterone therapy. Obviously, if they're on Clomid HCG, that's a whole different story, but um, we could talk about that later, but. Um... No, absolutely. So one of the first things that I would do in young men who are interested in fertility or want to go on to have kids in the future is I advise to at least get a sperm count checked. Mm -hmm. 
because if you start off with a very low sperm count or sometimes no sperm at all, then going on testosterone therapy is going to put you at a much higher risk of becoming azospermic or being infertile when you actually want to come off of testosterone therapy and actually have kids. Right. And, and, that's, and that's very important. But most of the time it doesn't happen because testosterone therapy does not start at a doctor's office. It starts at a gym. It starts right. at, at one of the um, uh, you know, training centers. And it starts at clinics where doctors don't even understand that testosterone therapy can be a contraceptive. And so men go on to just receive testosterone therapy without knowing if they have a problem with their sperm production. And then they come back five, 10 years later now saying, oh, doc, I have no sperm in my ejaculate. My wife wants to have kids. And now we're stopping the testosterone therapy and trying to like put them on clomid CG, like you mentioned, to try and boost their sperm count. But then they don't get any sperm. But we don't know if they had even sperm to begin with prior to starting testosterone therapy. Right. And so that's, that's where we get into this quagmire and this vicious cycle of trying to chase something that we may not ever be able to achieve. And so I think the, the message should be very clear is in young men who are going to go on to start testosterone therapy, please check your sperm count. At least know what it is, know, have a baseline. And if it is low, don't be afraid to sperm freeze because sperm freezing is about $350 a year and that's an insurance policy and sperm is good for about 20 to 30 years. And hopefully in the next 10 to 15 years, when you're getting ready to start a family, you've got at least something backed up. And if you have a normal sperm count, where it's 200 million, 300 million, I think taking testosterone therapy may not affect the fertility as much. Whereas if you're having a low sperm count to begin with, then you're already at a high risk of infertility. Going on testosterone therapy is gonna put you at a very high risk of not only going to be zero, but also having difficulties with recovering when you stop. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. A lot of my I always you know advise my gentlemen to to get a sperm analysis if they've never been on. But like you said, a lot of guys are already on it or have experimented with it. So you know those are the people that well maybe it's too late. But you're right; those are the ones you should advise everybody to just check it anyway. That way, if there's any question whatsoever, I mean, obviously a lot of guys are like, no, nope, I'm done, hundred percent, temper, you know. But it's always good good advice, and it's good to know that you know, freezing it is, is, you know, last, you know, 20, 30 years. That's a, that's a great pearl as well. Um, Correct. And, you know, guys that are on it, I mean, have you seen in your experience or any of the studies that have indicated like any, like a duration of time, for example, if they are, say have normal counts or they think they have, or maybe they don't know, and they've been on it for a year versus five years versus 10 years, like, is there like a, a linear progression or regression of, of, of chance of becoming fertile again, or is it logarithmic or what's your, what's your, Absolutely. So the one thing that has uh, been shown is men who are taking injection therapy and if they've taken it longer and they are older, then the chance of recovering is going to be a lot more challenging. Sure. So as opposed to taking gels uh, or nasal gel that we've recently published showing it actually maintains the sperm count in about 95% of men, I think those patients will recover their sperm counts a lot faster. I think men who take much higher doses of injections, like 200 milligrams of testosterone CPNA, and for a very long time, and then when they stop it, when they're much older, when they're like 50, 60 years old, and they want to have kids, I think that makes it very challenging. I think if you're younger, if you've taken it for a few short courses, um, or have even stopped it and given yourself drug holidays, or taken along with it Clomid and, and or HCG to try and maintain your spermatogenesis, if you had a good sperm count to begin with before you started testosterone therapy, I mean, all of those factors will try and help boost the sperm count back when you eventually stop it. 
in a lot of your patients that have say been on it, what maybe they have, or maybe they haven't been on HCG with it, but if they, they want to, they want to uh, boost their fertility, do you obviously do you typically recommend them stopping the testosterone and continuing the HCG, maybe having adding clomid as well? 100%. That's exactly the regimen. Um, and usually 90 to 95% of patients will recover by three to six months. Yeah. Um, but uh, the remaining five to 10% of patients may need testis biopsies and sperm retrievals to try and get sperm in, inside the testis. Uh, but 90 to 95% of the time that regimen will work with stopping testosterone. I mean, men will feel like shit, but I tell them I don't care because your wife wants kids and you need to have kids. And this is the only way. Right. Continuing testosterone therapy is not an option. Uh, because then you're still going to have zero sperm count like you did before, and right. no one in this uh, equation is going to be happy. But right. most of the men, after, the, after three to four months of on clomid and HCG, uh, they're okay with it, and you know, their testicles start making testosterone on their own, and they feel okay. The first part is always rough, but then they recover. That's typically what I've advised patients. I've only had a few that have, have been in that snare, but um, you know, as you mentioned, most of the time is successful. Do you do you typically do you find that in that five ten percent, if they are failing that, do you have to add you know recombinant FSH or HMB or anything like that, or, or no? Correct. If the FSH doesn't recover on clomid, then I definitely will add FSH at the three month time point. Sure. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. It's an, it's a good segue because I was going to ask you about you know in, in, from your experience in terms of like. Uh, because that's another question that comes up a lot in terms of topical format versus injectables. Most of my men are on injectables, but I've got a handful that are on the, the creams, whether they apply it on the, on the scrotum or, or elsewhere. But obviously, it's the most physiologic uh, approximation. But uh, I think they both work. It's just more of a personal preference, I think. But um, interesting to hear you say that the better fertility maintenance with the, the, the topical versus the injectable. Any other thoughts on those two types of forms in terms of uh, benefits, side effects, et cetera? Sure, exactly. So the trial that we just recently did uh, was with Netesto. It's a nasal gel that's, uh, that's, uh, that's used three times a day. So it's very, it's, a, it's very cumbersome to do it because it's three times a day. And most men are not comfortable doing something three times a day. Right. Uh, but the, the interesting part there is I don't think there's anything magical to the nasal delivery of testosterone. I think it's the, it, it all has to do with pharmacokinetics. Mm -hmm. If it's a very short acting testosterone therapy. So the peak goes up in about an hour and the, uh, and the, and the trough is within the next hour. So men get their T levels, uh, you know, drawn and, 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 it, and it goes away in, in the next hour. Right. You know what I mean? so, so I think yep. it's the short acting part that makes it very attractive, that keeps the physiology and the homeostasis balanced. Uh, but it's the other part. Uh, it's the, uh, it's the uh, long acting therapies that actually suppress the HPG axis and prevent spermatogenesis. Yep, that makes sense. That makes total sense. Yeah, I had not heard of that intranasal form until I heard you on uh, talk about it. Oh. You still there? Yeah, I'm here. Eric. Yeah. Okay. I lost your, your audio for a split second there. Okay, good. What's uh, interestingly, in terms of, um, I know a lot of men have had uh, reported better um, energy, libido, et cetera, with the, uh, the scrotal application of the cream versus the injectables. And uh, I've heard some pros and cons. You know, some people are, are you know, agree with that. Some people don't like it because of the more of an elevation of DHT, which a lot of people kind of demonize DHT, but it has a lot of health benefits as well. But <laughs> have you, what's, what's your opinion on that? I mean, um, the only time I'm concerned about DHT uh, on testosterone succinate and, and some of the long acting therapies is when men complain about hair loss mm -hmm. and they complain, complain about acne. And usually when that happens, I mean, sometimes just 
adding Proscart to it will just usually take care of the problem. Um, but if they are not, then I try and adjust the dose, either decrease the dose or increase their frequency uh, to try and mitigate the problem. I think it's the high dose that causes the increase in DHT. So trying to decrease the dose and giving it more frequently usually will take care of that problem. Yeah, I think the, the guys that I have on the creams, typically they're doing it once or twice a day, you know, a, a decent amount. But um, a lot of them like the, the, the boost in libido and the DHT seems to help. And I always tell them, they ask me about hair loss too. And I think most of it's genetic and you can it speed that up. But I think it kind of falls in line with the saturation model too, like prostate. So, you know, if you're destined to get it, it may accelerate it, it may not, I don't know, but <laughs> right. Have you, I remember reading a while back and I can't find the source, a study talking about with the, the topical uh, forms that there could be some adverse effects on uh, the intramedia thickness of, of the vasculature or affecting uh, the arteries, small vessels and things of that. I've, I've not been able to find that or locate that since. Are you familiar with anything about that or any adverse effects of that? So it was actually a pretty big study where they measured carotid artery intimal thickness mm -hmm. in men taking testosterone therapy. And they showed that the carotid artery intimal thickness actually increases, stating there is a higher risk of uh, thrombosis, uh, atherosclerosis. And this study came along with the same time that the studies on men taking testosterone therapy actually demonstrated increased risk of uh, um, angina, myocardial infarction, and another smaller study, actually a larger study, but, uh, but pretty poorly done study, which showed that testosterone therapy increases heart attack, stroke, and PE and DVTs. And I think both of all of these studies, all of them, three of them together, is what mandated the FDA to put a black box warning that all practitioners prescribing testosterone therapy need to discuss these adverse risks. Mm -hmm. I, think the, uh, I think the pendulum for testosterone therapy in 2000 to 2010 uh, was way uh, towards everybody should be getting testosterone therapy. We shouldn't even check the testosterone levels regardless of what the T levels are. We need to start taking testosterone therapy. And then I think in 2000 to 2015, with all of these studies and the FDA warning, I think we swung, swung the pendulum a little too much to the other side. And we said, nobody should be on testosterone therapy. It could kill you. And I think finally now we're settled down on who needs to get it, uh, who's going to benefit from it, why don't we try it for a few months? Let's see if your symptoms improve. If your levels improve and your symptoms improve, you can stay on it, or you should come off of it. Off of it if it's not improving. I think we're I think we're finally at the at, at homeostasis. I think we're finally understanding who we should give it to, who not to give it to, and how to discuss the risks. And and I'm happy where we are. So yes, there are studies that show the negative effects, like increasing uh, carotid artery intimal thickness. But at the same time, there's enough positive studies to show that testosterone therapy can improve your hemoglobin A1C, can improve body mass index, can improve waist circumference, can, uh, yes, increase blood pressure, but at the same time, be protective. In fact, I mean, you mentioned prostate cancer a little bit there, but you know, as much as we were talking about how testosterone therapy is contraindicated for men who have uh, treated prostate cancer or even a risk of prostate cancer, we're now swinging the pendulum to the other side, saying that maybe we need normal T levels uh, to be even protective for prostate cancer. And it could be a preventive for prostate cancer because uh, prostate cancer cells should not be seeing you know, low testosterone levels. Um, and so, so I think every, every, there's always shifts in studies, more and more literature we get, we go back. But I think as far as testosterone therapy and all of its risks, such as prostate cancer, heart attack, stroke, I think we're finally at a safe place where we know how to give it, 
how to counsel patients on the pro proper risks and to follow up patients properly instead of just giving it and saying, go take tea because you need it. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, a lot of the, like you said, a lot of the older studies weren't, weren't the best and a lot of the more newer retrospective and even the uh, randomized trials of actual interventional studies. Like if you listen to like, say, Dr. Neil Rousier talk about that, that anytime they've done an intervention, all the, there, there's never been a patient who was given testosterone therapeutically has had an adverse outcome or had a blood clot or had a stroke. If anything, they've benefited, improved cardiac function, you know, decreased, as you mentioned, decreased fat, improved, improved waist, you know, circumference, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously I feel it's very safe. And that's one of the things I talk to my patients about. So um, interestingly, I'd love, I'd love to talk, uh, get your take on, on let's, that's always the elephant in the room, right? Let's talk about the prostate. You know, people always ask about that, you know, um, you know, kind of going back to one of my mentors, Neil Ruzzi, I mean, he, you know, he actively treats patients who, who had prostate cancer, whether with testosterone or even sometimes he'll put them on, if they've been given, you know, deprivation therapy, they'll put them on estrogen because of the, uh, you know, it actually helps improve prostate cancer. So I feel it's very safe to give, you know, irregardless, but um, as you mentioned, I think a lot of studies are showing that lower testosterone levels are, if, you know, have a worse risk of getting prostate cancer, or if they get it, a, a worse type of, of cancer, but. Uh, That's I correct, think, yes. So what, what's your take, I guess, when, when guys ask you about prostate and prostate cancer, BPH, things like that, uh, how do you discuss that with them, whether it's treated or they've never had it or, or both scenarios, I guess? Perfect. So the only time I think I am, I do, I, I'm very hesitant to give testosterone therapy is in men with active prostate cancer. Sure. And I truly mean this is diagnosed prostate cancer, but not treated, um, but they are on active surveillance. Right. And in those patients, the, the, risk, the reason is in men who have very low risk prostate cancer with at least in six prostate cancer, which is the lowest risk you can possibly have, there's a 30% chance they could still be harboring high-grade disease that we haven't picked up. And in those patients, I, I do have a handful of patients and I remember them by name because they're, they're just so important and I just want to make sure they never get lost to follow up. Right. You can give testosterone therapy, you just want to be very careful in doing that. The, all the other patient populations, patients who've received prostate cancer uh, surgery, uh, prostate radiotherapy, cryotherapy, and now come back to you after three to six months with either an undetectable PSA or a PSA that has reached the lowest point in their whole spectrum of prostate cancer disease. I'm very happy to give testosterone therapy to. Patients who have a risk of prostate cancer, who have high PSAs, they've gotten biopsies that are negative, I'm happy to give testosterone therapy to. Right? They, they just need to be counseled about their risks but yep. the quality of life improvement that they get from testosterone therapy is so much more than their small risk of developing prostate cancer in the future, which we can pick up and treat. Thankfully, prostate cancer is a pretty indolent cancer. It's very slow growing. So it's not aggressive like bladder cancer where once you lose it, you've missed the window for treatment. Prostate cancer has a long leeway that it can be picked up and treated safely as long as the patients don't get lost to follow up or start taking testosterone on their own with no proper follow up. So, um, except that one small set of population where they have active diagnosed prostate cancer. All the other patients, either with a high risk of prostate cancer, family history of prostate cancer, or patients who've been treated for their prostate cancer, I'm happy to treat testosterone therapy for. And the other options that practitioners often forget is to do HCG monotherapy. Because mm -hmm. HCG actually helps boost your own testosterone level. Yeah. And it has not been shown to increase prostate cancer in any study for that matter. And so in our increased PSA. And so if it's your own testosterone, it's physiologic, why not give HCG? And some patients have opted to do that. Doc, if you're telling me testosterone therapy carries the risk, let me take HCG. And that's okay too, right? Because it's your own testosterone. 
and it's technically physiologic. And yeah. so sometimes I choose that and patients choose that and they're very happy with that option. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. What about patients who come in and, you know, no history of anything healthy, but for whatever reason, they've got an elevated PSA. I mean, is there, I mean, I know there's your standard uh, diagnostic workup, et cetera, you know, you can repeat it or maybe put them on a short course of antibiotics and recheck, or do you, if it's still really high, do an MRI versus a, a biopsy? What's your kind of general take or workup on that? Good. So we've actually, unless they're symptomatic with prostatitis, meaning with, with pain, with lower urinary tract symptoms, or a digital rectal prostate exam that shows tenderness, we don't, really don't just give antibiotics empirically for an elevated PSA. The current guideline on trying to ele work up elevated PSA is actually to get an MRI. Mm -hmm. And if you get the MRI, and if it shows a high-grade lesion somewhere, you should get the biopsy. Mm -hmm. And if the biopsy is negative, then certainly going ahead with treatment with uh, testosterone therapy is completely reasonable. If either insurance company doesn't cover the MRI or the patient doesn't want to go through the MRI and wants to just get the biopsy to get that over with, then certainly doing a standard biopsy without the MRI is still reasonable and acceptable. And if that comes back negative without prostate cancer, to go ahead and proceed with testosterone therapy is also reasonable. Because the elevated PSA could just be from an enlarged prostate, from aging, so many other causes than prostate cancer. And as right. long as we rule prostate cancer out either with biopsy or with an MRI and or biopsy, I think we should be safe. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. I think, I think well said. And I, I think I've gone down that road with many patients too, you know, you know, rechecking or if they, like you said, if they have symptoms in, in empiric treatment or, or otherwise I've referred to urology and uh, said, Hey, you know, you might need a, to get an MRI or, you know, maybe a, a, a biopsy depending on what you, what you find. So that's good. What about, I guess, in terms, do you, do you treat many men with, with prostate cancer? Um, and, and in its association with testosterone therapy. So I, I, mean, don't, I don't do prostatectomies, not just prostate cancer, but in association with the, either erectile dysfunction and or testosterone therapy, yes, I do. Okay. I mean, yeah, irregardless of testosterone, just, you know, your average patient who happens to have it. Have, have you treated with, uh, uh, obviously, the surgical intervention route or versus uh, deprivation therapy or even treating with estrogen, like some, pa like some aggressive clinicians like uh, Morgan Tyler and Ruzi have done, they just treated with estrogen, you know, kind of thing. What's <laughs> they're they're, they're so, aggressive. So estrogen was actually a very common form of androgen deprivation that was used back in the 90s. Yeah. With all of the whole women's health initiative and risks of estrogen forming blood clots, it has sort of fallen out of favor. Um, it sort of came back in favor in the early 2000, uh, in 2010, where people were still struggling to figure out how to treat metastatic and castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Now, there's a whole slew of drugs for castrate-resistant prostate cancer, or even castration-sensitive prostate cancer. There's about 10 to 15 drugs, and another 10 to 15 drugs that are actually in clinical trials that are going to come out for this patient population alone. Until 2010, we had zero drugs, literally zero drugs, other than hormones, to treat men with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Now, in the last 10 years, we have about 15 drugs to treat these men. So going back and using estrogen, when we have actually level one evidence showing that there are drugs that improve overall survival, in some cases by eight months, 10 months, 12 months, um, I think I, I'm not a big fan of going back to estrogen again. Sure. Uh, before it was, but now, because of all of the advances, I think that there's, there's much better options with far fewer side effects and risks that we should just use before we go on to estrogen. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. Before I forget, I, not to backtrack, but we were talking about HCG therapy, which I love to use in a lot of my patients, but I know I've, uh, I haven't used it yet, but uh, have you used gonadarellin uh, for patients who can't get HCG for whatever reason? I know it's getting a little harder to get, but or utilize. Have you, are you familiar, have you used that or familiar with it? Or? Absolutely. Just HCG? Or the gonadarellin if you, in, instead of HCG, which is a GNRH made by the pharmacies? Correct. Um, I don't have experience with gonadarellin. I have experience with HCG and, of course, FSH and menopore. Yeah. Uh, for reproduction or spermatogenesis in particular. Uh, but HCG, I mean, it's got several uses. I think in men who have normal T levels, so a guy that comes in to you with a testosterone level of 450 and says, Doc, I'm having symptoms. If you look at the guidelines, it's testosterone level less than 300 or the lower limit of normal, he doesn't match criteria for getting testosterone therapy. So in those patients, instead of just sending them away, and if they show you a testosterone level of 800 last year, and they are 450 this year, they've got every reason to be symptomatic because they were not where they were last year. Right, absolutely. And so in those patients, I am all for treating uh, with HCG either 2,000 units once a week sub-Q or 2,000 units twice a week, depending on where they want to get to. Sure. Um, HCG is obviously a very good treatment option in men who want to maintain spermatogenesis and testicular size, starting testosterone therapy when they are young, they want to go, you know, they want to maintain that, certainly keep them on it 1,500 or 2,000 units once a week along with their testosterone therapy. And it's certainly a very good option for people coming off of testosterone therapy and they want to maintain their intratesticular testosterone boost for metagenesis, I think in that patient population as well. But there I use a much higher dose when you're pushing the nets to make sperm. So then I use 2,000 usually up to even three times a week sometimes to try and boost for metagenesis. Yep. So HCG has many uses. I'm, I'm all for it. I think it's very physiologic. It's, it certainly boosts your own natural testosterone. Um, long term, we've actually published a study showing that up to 12 months, sometimes patients on HCG can maintain their T levels and without increases in PSA and hematocrit. So I think even from a safety standpoint, uh, I, am, I, am, I am less reluctant to using HCG than jumping to testosterone therapy. Are you, are you in favor of using it in, in coincidentally with testosterone therapy to kind of... Yeah. Yeah. So in young guys that say, Doc, I want to freeze sperm, but I want to have the option of maintaining my testis size. I don't want my testis to atrophy. I mean, I'm thinking of having kids in the future. Then along with testosterone therapy to use HCG is completely reasonable. Yeah, it's, I, I think most of my, my men that are on testosterone, I, almost all of them are on HCG as well, just for the reasons you mentioned. Um, sure. I guess you use Clomid too, if you think about it, I guess it would probably do the same thing. Right. Absolutely. Any, what are, what's on your plate for the rest of the year or in the next six, 12 months, any major challenges that are, you're coming up, any, any uh, speaking engagements or, or urologic uh, challenges you're, you're facing or clinically or academically? Sure. Um, so at the, so the biggest challenge we're facing is COVID. Yeah. Uh, we could talk a little bit about that and then I'll wrap up with at least some of the trials that we're doing here. Sure. So, um, we are actively investigating on whether COVID affects testosterone levels, and whether COVID affects spermatogenesis and long-term fertility. The, the data on whether COVID is present in the semen and whether it's transmitted sexually is still mixed. There's so far just one study from China showing that it can be present in the semen in acute setting. About nine studies that have basically published showing that it's not present in the semen. We're going to publish our data very soon, uh, but so far it's looking like we're going to agree with the majority of the world saying that it's likely not sexually transmitted. However, because the ACE2 receptor, which COVID binds to, is actually present a lot in Sertoli cells and Leydig cells. So Sertoli cells inside the testis support sperm. 
Lydic cells make testosterone, we think there is a pretty high chance that COVID at least enters the testis and breaks the blood-brain barrier because it's a virus, right? It goes everywhere. So why should it be, why should it not enter the testis? But long-term, does it, is it actually going to affect testosterone levels in these young guys that are becoming COVID positive? Is it going to affect fertility and spermatogenesis, not just in the acute setting, but long-term? I think that is a very important question that we're studying. Sexual transmission, I think not so much, but impact on fertility and testosterone, I think we are going to see something just because of the mechanism, because it binds to the receptor and the highest density of ACE2 receptor to which COVID binds is inside the testis. And it's in the cells that make testosterone and supports spermatogenesis. So for it, we, we, we're, so, uh, we're so focused on all the other organ systems that are important for maintaining life, like heart, kidneys, and liver. But I think we haven't gotten down to studying fertility yet, but yeah. I'm fairly certain once this is all over, we're going to see a lot of COVID-induced spermatogenesis, COVID-induced low testosterone. And so, so, that they, so hang tight. I mean, we're studying that right now. We should hopefully have some more data in the next month or two uh, because Miami is obviously unfor unfortunately affected with so much COVID. And we're seeing large numbers of patients who either have infertility issues and or low testosterone issues coming from it. And some of the other uh, trials that we're actually doing here, uh, we're doing three active clinical trials now. One, uh, looking at uh, nasal testosterone gel versus testosterone cypionate to try and study polycythemia. Because hematocrit and hemoglobin actually goes up on testosterone therapy. And we're trying to see if a short-acting gel will actually have less impact on polycythemia and hemoglobin compared to a testosterone injection that's given over two weeks. And so we're recruiting patients for that. And we're trying to see if that's, that's, that, that, that is a side effect that can be mitigated with the short-acting testosterone therapy, not just spermatogenesis. And then on the ED and the Peronis front, we're actually, we have the first approved clinical trials in the US to look at PRP. So platelet-rich plasma, P-shot, everybody hears it on all these ads and men pay, unfortunately, a lot of money to go get it. Uh, but we are, if you qualify for the trial, we're not charging any patients. And, we're, and it's placebo controlled. So it's 50% of the time you're gonna get placebo, 50% the actual PRP. And then at the end, we'll tell you which one you got. And if you got the placebo, we actually give you the drug at the end of six months, just so we have a controlled data to show truly it's efficacious, not just it's safe. So um, we, and same thing for Peroni's disease. We're trying to get PRP into the plaque to try and see if we can get the curvature better uh, for these men with Peroni's disease. So lots of things happening. Uh, but uh, certainly these are all some of the uh, works that we're doing here at the University of Miami that will have results hopefully within the next year. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I did not know about that with the, uh, the ACE2 on the, the Leydig cells, et cetera. That's, that's interesting to no doubt. I was not aware of in the, so you'll, you'll, uh, the P-shot, yeah, I've done a lot of P-shots actually. They do work pretty well, but it'd be great to have an awesome academic study uh, really digging right. into it. Sure, um, that works, yes. In terms of the the COVID, yeah, I was going to ask you about that, but we could talk maybe next. I'd love to, if you're, I know you're busy, but maybe in a few months, we could do a, a shorter podcast sure. and you could tell me the results of your studies. I'd love to hear that. Absolutely. No, I think, because uh, I mean, we're now, I mean, rightfully so, right? We're, we're so worried about surviving patients and, and trying to keep patients alive on COVID that most of the efforts are focused on vaccine, convalescent right. plasma drugs to treat COVID. Uh, but I think once, once the dust settles down, we're going to have to study some of the long-term effects on COVID on, on young men, right? I mean, the patient population that's affected now is actually 18 to 35. Like that's the highest COVID prevalence right now in every right. city, Miami for sure, but definitely every city. So all these guys are gonna go on to try and have kids in the future and to have their T-levels checked 
and we're going to find out that COVID has had some impact on their testicular function. For sure. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to be uh, uh, respectful of your time. I'm going to wrap it up and I so appreciate it. This is fun. I'd love to have you back on. Maybe in a few months we could recircle and, and see where things are if you're okay with that. But thank you very Perfect. much. I appreciate it. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Eric. All right. Have a good week. Okay.